0: Good morning to you. It is right on two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 10273 R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton and joining on Skype is...
1: Farm. Hi. Hey, Farm.
0: How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Made it once again. Excellent. <laughs> very good to hear. Hey, uh, thank you very much, Tim, for his six hours of Vital Bits this weekend. And um, thank you so much, Andrew, for his glorious edition of Soulful Bits With uh, wonderful Vicar and Linda, I felt better just listening to it. I hope you did too. If you missed it, of course, you can always catch it via radio on demand at any time of your choosing. Thanks so much um, to you both and um, Tim, especially to you. You can catch Tim next Saturday morning at 6am for another weekend of Vital Bits. Today's program, we got a big one. First up, we're going to be uh, joined shortly by Neil Blake, our bay keeper, who's going to be talking about uh, a bunch of things, including some... um, uh, actually farm. i'll let you do the intro to this because uh this is something that you and neil have been working on together
1: um yeah we um sorry
0: oh in terms <laughs> what of exactly is that one? well <laughs> when i say working on it's uh, it's a subject that you're both very familiar with i'm talking about the new legislation in south australia
1: Oh, yes, yes. So the, South Australia has actually become the first state to ban single-use plastics in Australia. So we'll mm. be talking a little bit about that. And also we'll be talking a little bit about um, a, a completely new COVID-related gripe, which is the uh, appearance of lots of single-use uh, face masks that are appearing all over the waterways and in the bushes and all over the streets as litter. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well today.
0: Yeah, and um, big thanks to Dr Surf who sent an article uh, my way during the week about this exact subject as well, some of the impacts of COVID on our marine wildlife. Um, single-use masks being sort of the more obvious one, and I think many of us were predicting that this might happen, uh, but some other, other things that have been happening as well. So, um, to, so thank you for that. Um, also some news from uh, Plastic Oceans Australia Farm.
1: Yes. Um, so Sea Week is starting, which is a public awareness campaign by the Australian Association for Environmental Education uh, to focus community awareness and provide information and encourage an appreciation of the sea, which is what we're all about, obviously. And um, they are organizing on Tuesday, they're organizing um, a Sea Week webinar on the impacts of plastic Plastic on Sea Turtles and Dugongs. And the webinar is called Meet Our Marine Mates. And there will be special guests, including Dr. Mark Hammond, who is an associate professor at James Cook University, um, who's been researching sea turtles and other threatened marine species for over 20 years. Uh, there will be Matthew Sherman, uh, who is from the UK, and he is a science lecturer and a TEDx speaker as well, and presenter of the film Plastic in the Air. And my favorite presenter, I'm looking forward to seeing, is Scarlett Ross Handler, who is a grade six student from. From melbourne and mm. she has been campaigning to ban plastic soy sauce fish bottles in australia yeah. so that's a very exciting lineup there um so go for you can sign up um over the internet and uh, i will post it on the facebook page so you can find it there that's the sea um, week webinar on Tuesday, the fifteenth of September from two to three PM.
0: That's fantastic. And good on you, Scarlett. Absolutely wonderful. And well, yeah, look this one's kind of it, it came up a few years ago, didn't it, Farmers being there there was a sort of a slow burn campaign to uh to do away with these little soy sauce fish containers and it it seems to have gone away. So it's fantastic that Scarlett's bringing it back again. So
1: Apparently her petition has already got 73,000 signatures, (laughs) so she's doing a pretty good job so far.
0: She's in grade six. That's just awesome. Oh, hope for the future. All right, then we're going, and um, uh, as also as part of your segment with Neil, um, a tribute to Tony Flood, uh, who was uh, a wonderful man from St Kilda's Eco Centre uh, and passed away this week. So we'll leave that one there for now, but um, Neil's going to lead a tribute uh, to Tony uh, shortly. We're also going to be catching up with James Rule from Museums Victoria and Monash University. You might remember James was on our program back in April talking about uh, a fossilised seal tooth that was found in Portland and actually turned out to be a real game changer in what we understand about seal evolution, particularly in southeastern Australia and in temperate waters. Um, Since then, uh, James has uh, put together a game-changing paper. He's described nine ancient seal fossils for the first time. These Fossils have been collected over 90 years or just under 90 years by generations of scientists and citizens from the area around Morris. And this paper has really significant findings uh, for what the world knows about seal evolution. So we'll talk to James about that. Really looking forward to this one. And uh, Um, then then to close the show, Cabin Boy Diaries' uh, Brett is going to tip his frayed sailor's cap to windsurfers. (laughs) <laughs> who he describes as, uh, as uh, I guess the forgotten sailors of the sea. Maybe they're my words. Anyway, we'll let Brett talk to that. And um, yeah, where to do it? Where can you go windsurfing now? We'll find out. Let's have a look at the weather. For the rest of today, we're heading for a top of 17 degrees, partly cloudy, chance of morning fog about the nearby hills, uh, medium chance of rain about 50% in the northern and eastern suburbs this morning, uh, easing off later on. Light winds becoming west to southwesterly 15 to 25 kilometres in the per hour in the middle of the day, then becoming light in the evening. Tomorrow, it'll be a bit drier, 17, partly cloudy. Tuesday, same thing, 17, partly cloudy. Warming up to Wednesday, 21, also partly cloudy, and then a bit of rain to end the week, 17 Thursday, 21 on Friday, and uh, 23 on Saturday. So, yeah, if rain is the thing you're thinking about, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, likely to be dry, and then uh, finishing off the week a bit of wet.
1: Sounds like a typical Melbourne spring week. <laughs> Something for everyone, fam. <laughs> it got all all the weathers. All the
0: weathers. That's it. Uh, tide times for today: a low tide at 11:52 a.m. at Port Phillip Heads, and then a high tide at 5:27 p.m. I reckon we got time for uh, maybe. Oh, actually, one thing I did want to mention: just a really big thank you to everyone who has been subscribing. During the Triple R Radiothon 2020, it's certainly been a radiothon with a difference. Um, particularly big thanks to Radio Marinara subscribers, and um, look for those of you who subscribe between nine and ten a.m. Of course, we've given you a fish name over the last few weeks. I've still got about twenty left, so if you feel like subscribing and you haven't yet. You're still going to be in the running for all the major prizes uh, and the specialist prizes, just not the daily ones, but you'll still be in the running for them um, between now and Wednesday, September 30. And, uh, yeah, we'll give you a fish name if you subscribe between now and 10. I've got the pledge monitor right in front of me. I'll see your name when it pops up and I'll, um, yeah, give one to you. Uh, and, Farm, uh, I believe we, you were contacted during the week by someone who subscribed to Maranara but missed a fish name yeah
1: she did but i have given her a fish name in the meantime and uh, uh she is definitely the wear your damn mask emperor ras.
0: <laughs> excellent <laughs> that's great i'll tell you what i've got left i've got remote learning rubber sponge stage one salt and pepper feather hydroid um, skype call wobbly pen. Testing Station, Tuskworm, Wash Your Hands, western Shell Grit, Anemone. So, yeah, and a bunch more. So loads and loads of fish names if you feel like subscribing today. One quick plug and uh, then we're going to play some music. Um, this one came through to me yesterday um, by Natalie Davey. From, you might remember Natalie. She's been on the program several times um, with the great work that she does with the Pelican One. She's also become part of a group um, called the Elston Week. Park Association uh, and they're going to be having a meeting, it's an online meeting of course today between 4.30 and 5.30pm Elston Wick Park Nature Reserve Community Meeting. So this relates to, in fact if you remember the Community Cup days down at Elston Week Park, um, it's not the football oval but it's the area adjacent to it where the there was Elston Wick Park Golf Course. It's being transformed into a unique wilderness reserve which is pretty exciting um, and in this meeting happening this afternoon you can, they're going to be discussing how the land is being rewilded for native birds and animals and as an urban oasis for humans right on the city's doorstep. So um, if you're a local, even if you're just interested in, you know, what this is going to be and what the options might be, um, definitely you can uh, tune into that one. The event is open to all. It's going to be hosted on Zoom. Uh, we will put a link to that on our Facebook page after today's program. So thanks, Natalie, for letting us know about that one. Without further ado now, we are going to welcome into the Radio Marinara Airways Neil Blake, our very own Baykeeper. Good morning, Neil.
2: Good morning, Bron. <laughs> Lovely to hear your dulcet tones again.
0: Likewise, Neil. We we missed you during Radiothon. You were hip and shouldered out of the way by uh, Captain Trash. Ah,
2: oh, he's like that. He's a aggro sort of a character. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. might.
0: Hey, farm. We still have you with us. Yes, I'm here. Excellent. Um, where shall we kick off? We've sort of talked a bit about Plastic Oceans Australia and their forum this week. Um, maybe we should go straight to South Australia and, uh, you know, big hat tip, big big round of applause for the great work they've done.
1: Yes. Once again, South Australia is, uh, is leading the anti-plastic movement in the government here um, because they have become the first state to ban single-use plastics in Australia. Uh, with legislation banning the sale, supply, and distribution of plastic products like straws and cutlery and beverage stirrers, um, and they, they passed the state parliament last week. Um, Now, the government had already flagged its intention to ban the product, um, all those products, by the middle of this year. But it was obviously delayed uh, due to the pandemic, just like everything else in life. Uh, And it now says that the ongoing impacts of the uh, coronavirus on businesses will see the rules come into force in um, 2021 so that they have some more time to um, to prepare. So it's very exciting, um, and the, the state environment minister, David Spears, said that uh, plastic items would be banned in a stage approach as well, um, with the aim of eventually removing them altogether. So it's quite exciting. They're, they're, they're kind of starting slow, and they're going to build up to um, um, yeah, dealing with the low-hanging fruit first, basically, like drink stirrers and cutlery and straws, and then next year they want to move on to takeaway containers, and then they'll be looking at coffee cups and fruit and veg barrier bags as well. So it's very exciting.
0: Neil, this must come as a, uh, a bit of a boost, particularly for someone like yourself who's been pushing and advocating for so long for reduction in use of plastic.
2: Yeah, it's fantastic, really. Um, it's interesting. There must be something in the water over at South Australia, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, reckon, you reckon the, the bad
0: that- bad tasting waters maybe had some positive spin offs.
2: Well, you know, they they have been pioneers in terms of, uh, you know, eliminating plastic bags and also with their container deposit legislation, which I think they introduced in 1977. Uh, But uh, curiously, though, that was around about the time when Victoria dropped their container deposit legislation. So I just don't understand the sort of federal politics of all of this sort of stuff. But uh, hopefully, though, you know, other states will come on board with the... um, following South Australia's lead with the single-use plastics ban, and uh, take it up rapidly.
0: I probably should issue an apology to any of our South Australian listeners because there's got to be at least one or two. <laughs> Narada reckons that the water doesn't taste that bad. I'm sure it doesn't. I think
2: I was scarred. I'm saying from... it tastes bad. It must be good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I'm scarred from a trip over there when I was maybe six or seven and uh, I couldn't drink the water because it tasted like pool water. But um, this, this was a long time ago. Maybe things have improved yeah, since they've then.
2: They've got Cooper's beer over there, though, Bron. So you know, it's 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 okay.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, well done, South Australia, and um, hopefully we can start to see uh, you know similar similar things happen around the country. Um, yeah, and
1: hopefully it's not going to take forty years like it did the container
2: deposit scheme for Victoria. Yeah. All yeah, right. They, just Sorry. one point: they, they have said that they will it'll be in force in early to twenty twenty one. And that 12 months after that, they'll be moving to uh, ban oxo-degradable plastic products as well as expanded polystyrene cups, bowls, plates and clamshell containers. So they've got a, a good hit list there.
0: Yeah, um, the AMCS has come out with a, um, a press release applauding their work, of course. And yeah, I noticed that there as well. There's also, of course, an exemption for people who require single-use plastic straws due to a disability or medical condition, Uh that's only sensible, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. All right. Let's, uh, we probably should have started with the negative and moved to the positive, but we've done it in the reverse <laughs> order of that. Um, uh, we've been talking about this for a little bit on and off, but um, the, the, you know, the evidence is starting to really come through about the, the problems that we're having with single-use face masks and how they're ma- making their way into the marine environment.
1: Yeah, it's a, it, it's really a problem. I mean, if you have been uh, outside on your one hour of allotted exercise, um, especially around areas like the Mary Creek uh, here up in the north or um, down south on the beach, um, I was doing some fieldwork in Elwood a number of weeks ago, and I could already see the the single-use plastic face masks kind of like blowing in the wind, hanging in the in the salt bush there, like right next to the right next to the bay. Um, and I did a little bit of, uh, of digging and um, found an article, um, a published article um, on the environmental dangers of employing single-use face masks as part of a COVID-19 exit strategy. It's uh, written by uh, people from the Plastic Waste Innovation Hub uh, from University College London. And they did a really interesting comparison between single-use plastic face masks and reusable ones, even the ones that you can make at home. Uh, And what they found is that basically the environmental impact assessment of those masks, um, they're looking at climate change impacts, um, which includes calculating the emissions over the life cycle of different types of masks, including and excluding filters and all that sort of thing. And they found that, um, you know, they included things like the the, um, emissions of packaging and manufacturing of the product and the materials uh, of both the mask and filter, then the transport, um, maintenance as well, such as washing, machine washing in, in um, for your reusable masks and also the waste disposal. And it's really interesting because if every person in the UK, which is where they were doing this research, used one single use mask every day for a year, that would create 66,000 tons of contaminated plastic waste oh
0: my God. and
1: create 10 times more climate change impact than using reusable masks that you can make yourself. 10 times more climate change impact. Yes. That's huge. So, yeah, so there you go. And if you use reusable masks, there is over a 95% reduction in waste um, if you only use reusable masks. And, you know, what we can't forget either is that the the plastic waste, those 66,000 tons, um, are all contaminated as well. You know, because people have been breathing into that that's and fine. so it's not actually safe to put that in, in, in your waste, in your normal waste streams either, um, which is something that's that's often overlooked.
0: Yeah, um, I mentioned at the start of the program, Dr Surf sent me an article that appeared in um, local paper, which I'm assuming is going to be the Mornington Peninsula leader, one of the local um, Mornington Peninsula newspapers anyway, because I know there's a couple of them, and talks exactly about this in terms of um, what's being reported as untold numbers of disposable but not biodegradable face masks. It's really important to recognise that they are disposable, but they're not biodegradable. Entering the environment, adding to the already overwhelming um, pollution of beaches and waterways, you <laughs> there's obviously the issue of the birds getting tangled in them and and um, other sea life as well but uh it's super important just to remember that that it's it's not just the physical problem of the face masks it's what they as you said farm that people are breathing into these things they should be placed in hate to say it but they really need to go to landfill they can't go out with recyclables but when they do go to landfill of course that's what they're taking into landfill as well um not everyone can make a face mask totally acknowledge and appreciate that people don't necessarily Really have sewing machines but there's plenty of fundraisers out there uh and and just an opportunity to buy them online they might take a while to get to you so i guess if you if you're still using disposables um then that's something that you might have to just continue to do while you wait for your masks to arrive but yeah plenty of options out there uh and it doesn't really take too long to find them
1: it's definitely worth it, and and really, you only need say, say like between between four and seven masks because you can just um, you know put them through the wash and use the other ones while you know while your old ones are in the wash. And uh, yeah, I think a ninety five percent reduction in in waste <laughs> just from using a reusable mask and saving all of that carbon going up into the air, I think is 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 well worth um, the investment, and it's cheaper as well because those those single use face masks are actually not that cheap. I think it's something like. Between thirty-five and seventy dollars for a box.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's so not. No, it's, not it's not only big. about twenty bucks now. Oh, 20, really? Twenty-five bucks now. Oh, yep. Yep.
3: I've I've seen them still at forty, but anyway, you're going to the expensive places. <laughs>
0: well, I'm not buying them, <laughs> but that's where I've seen them. Fancy face masks. Yeah. All right. So there's some good take-home messages there, and um, just yeah, look around. It doesn't take too long. Get onto your search engine of choice and look at where can I buy face mask, reusable face masks. I'll just say one more thing about
3: that. There are some people who are a little bit Uh, sensitive about reusing masks. So uh, perhaps it
1: needs to be just some
3: education that general washing is okay. Mm.
1: And it is because the coronavirus dies when you wash your hands with soap. Um, So that means that if you put your reusable uh, masks in the wash, just on your normal washing cycle with washing powder, laundry detergent, um, you will kill all the coronaviruses. So you don't have to worry about contamination after you wash your mask
0: yep i always put mine in a laundry bag just to preserve them and hopefully they'll last that little bit longer as well all right um neil we have you on our program we need to uh to go to you at this point anything else you want to say about face masks or should we um should we start talking
2: yes actually i wouldn't want to waste this opportunity bron but there (laughs) is actually uh a, a victorian government uh engagement process at the moment on a new Victoria Waste Act and Waste Authority. So people can go to the engage.vic.gov.au website. Uh, There are going to be a couple of Q&A forums um, between 1 and 2 p.m. on September the 23rd and 28th. And so that's really an interesting development to what the future of waste in Victoria is going to look like. So uh, they're committed, the Options Paper says they're committed to developing a new Waste and Recycling Act and establishing the Waste Authority by 2021. So that's a pretty significant sort of a, a move.
0: Well, back in April, we spoke with paleontologist James Rule about the discovery of a single fossilised seal tooth in Portland, which turned out to be a game changer in our understanding of how seals evolved in southern Australia. Well, since April, James has been busy and has just had a paper published in which he scientifically described nine ancient seal fossils for the first time, collecting over 90-odd years by generations by of scientists and citizens at Beaumaris. So what were these seals like and what are the implications of his findings? Let's welcome back to Radio Marinara and to R from Museums Victoria and Monash University paleontologist James Rule. Good morning, James. Welcome back.
4: Good morning. Thank you for having me back on the show.
0: It's great to have you back. When we spoke with you in April, we were keen to get you back. Um, you did mention that you had potentially a, a paper um, that you were working on. And wow, congratulations on your paper. It's uh, in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, no less. This is quite a big deal in the world of taxonomy, isn't it?
4: Um, yes, it is, and that's quite simply due to the fact that seal fossils are incredibly rare, not just here in Australia, but around the world. So being able to have any seal fossils can tell us a wealth of information. And the cool thing about these about this some um, discovery is that it's nine seal fossils, which more than doubles the record. and that gives us a unique opportunity to look into the ancient past and see what type of seals were living in Australia six million years ago.
0: It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, before we get into these nine fossils, I thought, uh, and, and the paper that you've written, I thought perhaps to recap and maybe for listeners who missed the last time you were here with us in, in April, can you remind us of the Portland seal tooth and why it was so significant?
4: Uh, yes. So the Portland seal tooth is a tooth found um, from a place in Portland called the Wellis Bluff Formation, which is a rock unit it comes from. And this fossil was three million years old. And it was very special because it told us that three million years ago, the seals in Australia were actually completely different to the seals that we have alive today. So the seals that we have around are fur seals and sea lions. So they're what is known as eared seals, and they're characterized by having external ears and having the ability to bring their hind flippers forwards so they can walk on land. However, these seals weren't around in the ancient past, and this too demonstrated that we in fact had a group known as the Southern True Seals, the Monarches, And these seals don't have any external ears, and they sort of have to bounce when they're on land because they can't actually move their hind flippers forward to walk. And they're sort of, um, today, they're represented by seals such as the leopard seals in the Antarctic or the monk seals in the tropics.
0: I still find it mind-blowing that all of this information can be, uh, can be extracted, um, if you'll pardon the pun there, from a single tooth. <laughs> it's just incredible. Um, so it's been six months and the nine seal fossils that we've talked about collected over 90 years by a bunch of different people. Uh, the seal tooth is not part of those nine. Is that right?
4: Uh, no, it's not. So yeah. these fossils come from a completely different site. So from Beau Morris, So that's in Bayside, Melbourne, about 30 minutes from the CBD. And these seals are between five and six million years old. And they, in fact, represent the most ancient and oldest seal fossils that we know of from Australia.
0: How do you go about scientifically describing a seal fossil, James? Where do you start?
4: Um, Well, that's something I struggled with with quite a long time for my PhD because it was one of the first um, chances I had to describe a fossil. And so it was a bit of a learning journey. And where you essentially start is you do a lot of reading and you have to spend a lot of time looking at the bones of living seals. So it's a lot of time spent in the collections of museums, not just in Australia, but around world, and taking notes, observing what makes them unique and trying to observe those same characters in the fossils.
0: And these are fossils that Oh, sorry, Fan. Sorry, right, I just had a, que- a
1: process question,
0: I guess. Like, because obviously
1: there is no field guide of, uh, <laughs> of seal tooths or, or fossils <laughs> in, in any case. So how do you go about that? Do you literally go into the museum and you have to like open all the little drawers and get all of those fossils out and compare them to each other to find out what exactly it is that you found or is there a catalog or something with like 3D pictures or do you get your hands dirty and how how does that work
4: um well yeah it's pretty much exactly like you said there is a lot of getting all the bones out and putting them on the same table and then getting your fossil being right okay what makes this you know more similar to this seal for example than to this seal Um, However, a lot of the work, to be fair, has been done already by other scientists. So there are a lot of scientific papers that describe the characteristics of the anatomy of various bones in seals and how you can use that to tell what type of seal it is. Um, Some bones though, that that work hasn't been done on. So one of the biggest challenges on this is um, there was a lot of vertebrae, so they're the bones from the spine of the seal, and that work hadn't really been done. Or seals, So I had to do all of that work myself. And um, it's just a lot of comparing. Um, I also did a lot of 3D scanning of seal bones because obviously you can't take the fossils from Australia to museums in other countries. So there's a lot of scanning of seals and then comparing the scans or even 3D prints of the bones to the actual thing once you're back home.
0: Wow. Do we know that these um, fossils are from different seals or are they are some of them from the same animal?
4: Um, it's very hard to be sure. It's most likely they're from different seals. I can say for certainty that they're from at least two different seals because we have two of the same bones from the hind flipper. And so obviously they represent different individuals. But um, but it's very likely that they represent nine different seals. And that's just because of the way that fossils are found at Beaumaris.
0: Wow. And these have been collected since 1930 by a bunch of different people. One of them was Tim Flannery, I believe, in the 1970s. So he found one of them.
4: Yes, he did. Um, he Back when Tim Flannery found these fossils in the 1970s, it was when he was just getting started in his... Um, paleontology career, long before he was the environmentalist we all know and love. And um, yeah, essentially when we he found the first seal fossils at Bo Morris, um, they were the first time we knew about them. So there is one fossil from the 1930s, but no one had looked at it back then and knew it belonged to a seal. And so that was when we first realized that there was a the potential to find seals in the fossil record of Australia.
0: It's incredible. Um, so big implications from what you have found. Uh, what have you found, James, and why is it so significant?
4: Um, so once again, when I looked at these bones, it told us that they were the remains of the southern true seals, so the Menarchens. Um, So that's pretty much consistent with the last paper I did on the seal tooth. So we know that in not only where their youngest remains in the fossil record true seals, also their oldest remains were. Um, And that pretty much tells us that the fur seals and seal lines really didn't get here until very recently. The other thing that we could tell though, is we also did some measurements and we used them to predict the body length of these seals. And that was actually a surprising finding of the study because we found out that these seals actually were a lot smaller than their modern relatives that live in the Southern Ocean today, which was really cool.
0: And closer in uh, morphology to the seals that you might find around Hawaii, is that right?
4: Um, Yes, potentially. Um, But that is mostly because the ones from Hawaii and the Mediterranean are very archaic seals, if that makes sense. They um diverged from the southern seal ancestor a lot earlier than the seals that we have in the Antarctic. And so what that told us is the seals that we get from Bomaris represent some type of very ancient seal that we haven't seen before, which was really cool.
0: I want to ask you about the comparison between the the seal that you've been able to describe from that finding of the fossilised tooth in Portland and these ones. So obviously geographically, you know, there's a fair distance between Portland and Bomoris. But in terms of the age of the fossils as well, did you say that the one in Portland was estimated to be around 3 million years old and these ones are around 5 to 6 million years old? Is that right? Yep, that's correct. That's amazing. So there's a three million year difference between the approximate age of these fossils, but morphologically you're thinking the animals that they came from are pretty similar.
4: Um, potentially. Um, what would be really great is if we, if we could find either the equivalent tooth from Beau Morris or an, one of the, any of the other nine bones, the equivalent from Portland, to be able to tell if they're really very similar. But we both know that they're both southern true seals. Um, so there's potential there and it will be very interesting I way. I would very much like to hopefully one day find out once we find more fossils, whether we actually truly have, you know, um, many different groups of seals here in the past or was it really one sort of group? And um, that's something we really don't know about specifically, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah. So much more to do, James, uh, and it's really exciting that there is so much more to do. Your work's been described as the single, big, single biggest leap in understanding of evolution of seals in Australia, which is pretty cool when you're, um, are you still a PhD candidate or have you submitted?
4: Uh, no, I'm still doing the PhD, uh, which is a very interesting experience when you're in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, essentially, um, it was I was just very incredibly lucky. Um, as initially, we knew that we did have some seal fossils from Barosaurus in the collection that needed to be described. But when we went looking through the collection, there was so much more than we initially thought there would be, and it was just a real privilege to get the chance to be able to contribute in such a huge ways to the science.
0: And we need to um, give a big hat tip to uh, to your supervisors as well. Um, Eric Fitzgerald is one of them, is that correct?
4: Yep, Eric Fitzgerald from the museum. Um, he is one of my co-supervisors. And also my main supervisor, uh, Justin Adams from Monash University was in the study as well. They helped out quite a lot with the identifying of the bones and being able to tell what characteristics they had. <laughs>
0: So what we absolutely want to get you back on again, James. What's uh, what's next for you?
4: Um, so that's a big question. I have quite a few chapters that I'm working on my PhD that will eventually become papers at the moment. Um, I am looking at some fossils from New Zealand, which could potentially be very exciting. So I'm hoping to get that one submitted soon. And we've also got potentially some new fossils from Australia, which will also be really cool. But we've also got some old fossils from Australia that haven't been looked at in a while. So I'm going to revisit them for one of my PhD chapters and see if there's any new information we can get out of them.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks so much, James. It's been fabulous having you back on the program and I'm already looking forward to the next time. So good luck with the next few months and uh, please get in touch with us again. Um, Maybe, you know, when you make some other um, ground-breaking (laughs) discovery that that (laughs) turns our understanding of seal evolution on its head because it's it's amazing what you've done so far. No problem. Um,
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All, it's always a pleasure. Uh, bye for now. We've been speaking with James Rule from uh, Museums Victoria and Monash University and, wow, incredible stuff, Fam.
1: Yeah, incredible stuff. And uh, I also kind of wonder, uh, James, when we get out of lockdown, which is the fossil site you want to go to the most?
4: Oh, um, that's a very tough one. I would have to say Beaumaris again some- it's so close. Um, but I'd also very interested in getting back to Portland because while we've had fossils donated there from members of the public, I've never actually been down to the site myself. So I'd be very much be enjoy going over there and checking out and seeing what it's like.
1: Oh, something to dream about when we get out of lockdown. Indeed.
4: Yep, 100%. <laughs> I'm, yep, it's on my list.
1: Excellent.
0: Hey, thanks, James. We'll catch you soon.
5: All right, thank you. Looking forward to it. Uh,
0: 953, listening to Mariner. We've got Brett on the line before we um, bring Brett on. Actually, good morning, Brett.
5: Good morning, crew. You've
0: been waiting for us. I just need to... um, We've suddenly had uh, five subscribers who've popped up on our pledge monitor, so I'm just going to thank these people quickly uh, because I know that our conversation with you will take us through to ten. Vincent Caruana from Dalesford is a new subscriber to Marinara. Thank you, Vincent. He says, I'm listening with my dad. You played our favourite song. Oh, thank you. And he says, can you name me after a turtle? Absolutely, Uh, Vincent. You are a testing station green turtle, so I hope you enjoy that name. Um, (laughs) Jacinta Gill. Girolami from Ashwood, Renewing and says, thanks. Thanks, Jacinta. You can be a stage one salt and pepper feather hydroid. Sophie Herring. Oh, you've already got a fish name, Sophie, from Geelong. To Respect the Rock with Tadpole. Amazing program. Thursday afternoons, I look forward to that every week. Uh, Sophie, you can be a SARS COVID-2 speckled sea whip anemone. Trevor Carlyle from Sunshine. Uh, new to Radiotherapy, who are coming up very shortly. Trevor says, thanks, Triple R. Long time listener. Mostly reliable <laughs> subscriber shout out to all mental health staff in Melbourne oh yeah from us too thank you so much Trevor you are a testing station no I've already done that one you are a wash your hands western shell grit anemone and uh, finally Orsi Decker from Reservoir renewing with a donation thank you so much Orsi such amazing music and shows Uh, I just want to know one more thing what does 3 triple R mean wow what a big question that is I'll give you your fish name first you are a quarantini queen scallop and uh, what does triple R mean? Reading, writing, arithmetic. That'll do. St- it stems
3: from, um, what was it, RMIT, wasn't
0: it? Yeah. 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 I yeah. say respect,
3: respect, respect because well, that's what the station means to me. Yes, but that's where it originated, so there you go. <laughs> we, have, we have an educational licence, essentially. Right. There you go. There you go.
5: go. Hey, Brett. Y- yes, um, I was beginning to worry that you were going to f- forget about the windsurfers again this week. <laughs>
0: yeah. We never, they're always there in our hearts.
5: They are. So Um, if there are windsurfers out there, you can still subscribe and get a transom sticker. But um, yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing, windsurfing. It was big in the 80s, kind of died down a little bit, but it's a bit of a resurgence. So uh, they are still out there, the windsurfers. Um, it did have an um, an interesting development, though. Um, it goes back to the early Polynesians. They had sailcraft that they stood up on. Everything with sailing seems to go back to the Polynesians. But um, really, kind of the first real kind of mention of um, windsurfing or – well, I better define what a windsurfer is first. It's a board that you stand on and it doesn't have a rudder. So uh, it's also got a sail that's connected to the board via a universal joint and you can rotate the sail and move it back and forward and that's how you you actually steer your windsurfer. If you move it forward, you go into the wind. If you move it aft, you'll go away from the wind. So that's how you steer it. In 1948, Newman Darby um, developed a handheld sail and rig, much like we've got now. But it was for a catamaran, so it wasn't quite a windsurfer yet. He uh, tried to patent it, but didn't have the funds for it. And he continued tinkering, and in 1964, he released the Derby Sailboard. It's kind of like the modern windsurfer, but it had a square sail, so we weren't quite there yet. And... Uh, he didn't actually make any money out of it because he uh, developed so so he could introduce youth to the sport of sailing. So he was kind of a good guy in a way. And it wasn't until um, the, uh, well, probably around 1968 when aeronautical engineer Jim Drake and Californian surfer Hoyle Schweitzer got together and uh, they kind of made the modern windsurfer and they formed a company called Windsurfing International. They trademarked it and patented it, so it was all locked up pretty tight. Now, the late 70s, early 80s, huge growth in windsurfing right across the world, very big in Europe, very big in Australia. Um, what windsurfers sold.
0: Was that the glamour factor that kicked in, do you think?
5: I think it was, and it was something new and kind of... um just well it was new you know it wasn't the old fuddy-duddy sailing suddenly it was all exciting you were hanging on to a sail and standing up and doing all kinds of things in fact i think it was quite it was almost bigger than surfing back then it kind of overtook took over everything really so very successful What happened? Wow, that is a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Because back then, the action on the water was only matched by the action in the law courts. Mm -hmm. Um, Windsurfing International had a very very tight hold on the patent and that. So any other company that wanted to make anything to do with windsurfing had to pay them rights and all that. And it wasn't until I think they're called Tabar Marine. They were backed by French sailor Baron Marcel Biche. Um, they got a ruling in the British law courts that the patent wasn't valid due to it wasn't anything new. It mm. was a redevelopment of other ideas of people that had put up in the past. So basically, what the, the British court ruled was they, the, um, Baron Michel Bic didn't have to uh, pay any rights to Windsurfing International, so um, suddenly the market was opened. Um, that turned into uh, Bic, which is quite a huge windsurfing. It's a French company, and they were one. Of, they became one of the largest producers of windsurfing equipment, with selling something like fifteen thousand boards a year. They were turning over wow. so very, very big. Yeah, 1984. Also, it was an Olympic sport. And probably, if you mention windsurfing, if you don't re- mention Robbie Nash, who was an Hawaiian, he was the pin-up boy for everything. Quite, pr- quite a successful out of windsurfing. So yeah, law courts, uh, Mistral, a Swiss company, also took um. Windsurfing International to court and won. And we also had a ruling in Australia about it, too. So Windsurfing International kind of folded as a company in the late 80s. Um, so it was all over for them.
0: Brett, we're going to have to wrap it up pretty quickly. (laughs) All right. Um, As
5: I said, don't do this to the windsurfers. If you do need to know where to go windsurfing, jump onto www.wv.org.au, and that gives you a wide variety of places to go windsurfing. Such an Elwood Sailing Club, Parkdale Yacht Club, Sandringham, Anderson's Inlet down in Inverloch and St Kilda. So um, big shout out to all the uh, windsurfers out there. Hi, this is
0: Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.